Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, we do thank you for the reminder, for the exhortation this morning. It is so true that we can become so easily complacent and that familiarity does breed contempt. The longer we walk with you, the the longer that our lives are, are woven into your church, the more familiar we become with the scriptures, the more easy it is for us to truly become despisers of them, even though we don't see that, even though we don't believe that and wouldn't say that about ourselves. But certainly the devotion, the energy, the interest, the the time that we give to these issues, these matters of faithfulness, certainly does show that we take for granted and we don't find the delight, the devotion that we ought to have. I pray, Father, as we continue our worship, that you would continue to capture our hearts in this time, not for the sake of considering historical things that happened a long time ago, but for the sake of recognizing and reminding ourselves again that the God that we know, the God that we follow is the God who has always been faithful, the God whose purposes are unchanging, the God whose will and work in the lives of the patriarchs 4,000 years ago has not changed. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, we have the same high and holy calling. We are a part of that same heritage, and we are called to leave the same legacy of faith and faithfulness. So draw us in, instruct us, and encourage us. Renew our sense of faithfulness, and our commitment to walk before you in that way. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. In the middle of uh, chapter 11, we're considering the writer's treatment of Abraham. And as I said, he gives the most time to Abraham of any of the particular individuals that he deals with. And for obvious reasons, Abraham was so foundational in uh, God's outworking of his purposes in the world. And last time we considered Abraham's faith and faithfulness in relation to this promise of an heir. And importantly, it wasn't just that God was promising an offspring to an old man. That in your old age, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Won't that be wonderful? And Sarah, who's old and has been barren her whole whole life, she's going to have a son. Won't it be wonderful to have a child after all these years? I know you've wanted to be parents for a long time, and now I'm going to give you a child. It wasn't that. Abraham was promised an heir of the covenant, an heir of in whom all of God's truthfulness, all of God's pledges, all of who God was in relation to Abram and really ultimately to the world was bound up in that child. It was in and through that child that God's pledge to Abraham that you will be the father of a great nation was to be realized. And ultimately, although in a way that perhaps wasn't clear at that time, that covenant heir would be the means by which which Abraham would become 
the father of a multitude of nations. That Avham, father of a people, would become Avravham, father of a multitude of peoples, father of many peoples. And so that fatherhood of Abraham, as that was integral to the covenant that God made with him, as it looked even ultimately to God's purposes for the world, that fatherhood of Abraham actually was to be realized through Isaac. And it had both a biological and a covenantal dimension. As it passed on to Isaac, it was obviously biological in that Isaac was a son of Abram, born of his body, born of Sarah's body. Isaac then had his own covenant heir in Jacob. And then through Jacob, 12 sons through whom the 12 tribes of Israel came, who uh, became the corporatizing of the man Israel. Jacob became Yisrael, the one who prevails with God. And Jacob was corporatized, if you will, in, in the nation descended from him. And so there was that biological dimension as well as the covenantal dimension as it pertained to the, uh, the offspring of Abraham. But in the promise that he would be the father of many nations bringing in of the Gentiles, if you will, or the fatherhood of, of um, Abraham relative to the Gentiles, there wasn't that biological connection. It was purely a covenantal connection. And from the very beginning, you did have Gentiles coming into the house of Israel. They became children of Abraham by adoption, if you will, through circumcision, owning the covenant, the sign of the covenant, and through owning God's Torah, God's covenant, uh, which took the form of the law of Moses at Sinai. And so the Gentiles were not descended from Abraham, but they were woven into his family covenantally. But there was a very core of that covenantal dimension of fatherhood that in a certain sense wasn't entirely clear in the Old Testament history. Something that became clear with the fullness of the times. As Paul put it, not all Israel is Israel. From one vantage point, every Israelite was a son of Abraham. From another vantage point, not every Israelite was a son of Abraham. And that core issue in Abraham's fatherhood was relation to him according to the dimension of faith. He is the father of all the faithful, the father of all who have faith. And again, that became more clear in the fullness of the times, even in, in the gospel accounts and, and the fleshing out of the significance of Jesus coming. Remember John the Baptist in his ministry of preparing the people of Israel for the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom that God had promised. He said to those who came out to him, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Descent from Abraham, even the covenantal relationship with him historically is not sufficient. The truth is God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones, but bring forth that which is consistent with being children of Abraham, the repentance of a return to God such that you will discern the times and the significance of the one who is coming, the one that I am heralding. And Jesus himself said to the Jews who were believing in him, he rebuked them in their claim to be children of Abraham because he said, you are disbelieving me, you are seeking to kill me. Abraham didn't do that. Are you truly children of Abraham? And Paul will go on in his writings and talk again about the fact that he's not a Jew who's one outwardly with the circumcision done in the flesh, but he's a Jew who's one inwardly with the circumcision done by the Spirit of God. And that ultimately it's those who belong to the Messiah, the singular seed of Abraham, It's those who are children of Abraham and heirs of the promise made to him. And so the point is this, that in the the working out of the salvation history, 
the promise to Abram that he would be the father of a great nation and ultimately somehow the father of a family of nations, a multitude of nations, that worked itself out and, and was developed in the salvation history in such a way that the ideas all converged in the fullness of the times with the coming of the Messiah himself, the singular seed of Abraham. So somehow the promise that Abram would be the father of a great nation, God would make him a great nation, that was wrapped into the fact that he would be the father of many nations. And even more, Abraham understood, at least in a germinal way, that somehow the realization of that global fatherhood would be connected with this promise of God that through him the blessing of God, the blessing of covenant connection with God would go out to all the families of the earth. Somehow, Abram, the, would, his, the greatness of him being the father of a great nation would be tied to the blessing of God going out to all the families of the earth. And in that way, somehow, he would become the father of many nations. These are all things that he understood, but in a very germinal way. God was going to make him a great nation, but with the goal that, again, he should be the father of many nations, united by not genealogy, not ethnicity, certainly not descent from Abraham himself, but united in a common share in the blessing of covenant relationship. And given the fall, remember, again, the premise of the Abrahamic covenant was the fall, and the promise of God tied to the fall. Given the fall and the exile of not only the human race, but the exile in a very real way of the creation from God, the fracturing of that relationship between God and his creation, that blessing of God going to all the families of the earth would involve reconciliation and ingathering. Whatever Abraham would have understood about all the families of the earth being blessed in him, he would have known that in some way that would address the fundamental problem of the families of the earth, which was alienation, exile, expulsion from God's habitation, expulsion from relationship with God. So the promise of descendants was the promise that Abraham was God's chosen instrument for recovering the human race. And somehow also the creation in that way. That recovery, that blessing of God going to all the earth's families would end the exile of the human race. And it would see mankind brought back to their creator father in such a way that they would be his people and he would be their God. That's at the heart of the Abrahamic promise. I will be their God. I will be God to you, Abram, and your descendants will be my people. Somehow this blessing, this restoration, this renewal, this recovery would see to it that God would have a people who would be his people indeed, and he would be their God. They would dwell with him in the place of his habitation. The exile would be ended. The creational exile that we see in Genesis 3. Well, what's my point in saying all of that? My point is that in Genesis 15, when God said to Abram, he promised him an heir, these are the ideas that were wrapped into that. It wasn't that God said, yeah, you're old, but you're going to have a baby. Won't that be wonderful? Go have a baby shower. That wasn't the point. What Abram believed, the promise of God that he believed and that was, that was his amen, when the text says he believed God, it's he gave his amen, his, uh, his, his laying of his own sense of, of verity or authentication to what God had told him. And what God had promised him was these things that we've been discussing. That was what he gave his amen to. And that belief, that ownership of the promise of God that embodied God's purpose for the world and Abram's place in it. 
That was what was reckoned to him as righteousness. He laid his hands on God's purpose for the world and his place in it. It wasn't just that your old body is going to conceive a baby. And that becomes important even as we move into the next section dealing with the sacrifice of Isaac. But the point is for today that that's the narrative that the Genesis account constructs. That's the narrative that Genesis builds. And it's that Old Testament storyline that continues on. That's the story that the whole Old Testament affirms, and that's the story that the Hebrews writer had in mind in this parenthesis that we're going to look at today. That's why I began the way I did. Because the writer, he doesn't step aside from Abraham. In a certain sense, he does in verses 13 through 16. But this is a passage that's been interpreted in a lot of different ways because there's a tendency very often to move away from the salvation historical context. What it is that the writer's really dealing with here. And that's why I wanted to lay that foundation in that way. But read with me then in... um, well, let's just, let's just run it back to verse 8 through verse 16, chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was going to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien, a foreigner in the land of promise, as in a foreign place, dwelling in tents, as, as temporary dwellings, he was a sojourner with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs of the same promise, covenant heirs. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abram, even Sarah herself being barren, Abram received the capacity to conceive even beyond the proper time of life considering him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead, at least reproductively, as good as dead, was born of him as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and as numerable as the sand which is by the seashore. That's the language of Genesis 15 in the promise of an heir. This is Abrahamic language. This is families of the earth language. Now, verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from afar and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They didn't receive them, but they saw them and they embraced them at a distance. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better habitation that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. All of my opening statements were to hopefully provide a lens through which we can read this passage and understand the point that the writer is making. Remembering again that he's recounting these things to Jewish Christians who know their own history as told in the scriptures. And he's writing these things to encourage them and to strengthen them in their resolve and faith. This isn't just a theology lesson. This is as practical as the lives they're living and the struggles that they're enduring. Well, the first thing that we have to to address when we look at this is what is the referent, what is the subject, who is the subject that he is talking about? He says in verse 13, all these. And the first thing our minds should say is, who's the all? Who's the all these? Who's he talking about? And there are three possibilities in the context. The first one is perhaps the most obvious, which is that he's talking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
they're individuals that he's, he's already named. And Abraham is at the center of this wider context. So there's a certain indication in the context that that's what he's talking about. And certainly, in a certain sense, we can say from a certain vantage point that the things that the depiction that he's given applies to them. The patriarchs died in faith without receiving what was promised. And the the emphasis here in this parenthesis from 13 to 16 is on a habitation, a country, a dwelling place. And all of the patriarchs died without inheriting Canaan. He's already said that, right? They lived in tents. They were wanderers. They were in and out of, of the land of Canaan. The second possibility is that he's talking about all those that he's named so far. Well, the one that's the obvious problem with that is Enoch. Enoch did not die in faith without receiving what was promised. But you can say in a certain sense that this catalog of faithful people that he's building, um, you know, even up to this point is the ones that he is talking about. But if you go back to Abel and Enoch and Noah, the, the idea of, of the land promise doesn't so much, a habitation promised to them covenantally doesn't so much apply because that came into the picture with Abraham, right? The third option is that the writer has in mind the multitude of descendants who've come from Abraham, That's the most immediate referent. Anytime you see a pronoun or, you know, an undefined adjective functioning as a pronoun, all, um, you have to say, what's the referent? What's the antecedent? If it's he did this, he did that. If I walked up to you and said, hey, he told me, you'd say, who's he, right? So determining the antecedent is important. And the, the nearest... Most obvious antecedent is all these, he says. He received as many descendants as the stars in the heaven, as numerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All those, all these died in faith. Well, the most obvious objection, and the one that usually you will see raised to this, um, is the fact that all these descendants refers to the household of Israel, and you can't say that all of them died in faith. The vast majority of them didn't die in faith. The vast majority of them died in unbelief. The other thing that you can say that is an objection is that he says they all died in faith without receiving what was promised. Well, the people of Israel received in great substantial uh, you know, degree what was promised. They did inherit the land. They did inhabit the kingdom that God promised to Abraham. Many of them, many of Abraham's descendants actually lived during the time of the, the glory of the Abrahamic kingdom in the Davidic monarchy under David and Solomon. Greatness, dominion, kingdom, land. Israel had inherited all of that. So what what does he mean then? And this is enough for people to say, no, he can't be talking about all of the descendants of Abraham because these statements, this depiction isn't true of them. They didn't all die in faith and they didn't die without receiving what was promised. Well, when we say, okay, what is the writer trying to get at here? Again, depending on who the, what the referent is, that's going to alter his meaning. If we say, okay, he's talking about the patriarchs. The patriarchs all died in faith without receiving what was promised. And those who hold that view tend to say, okay, there, he's, he's saying one of two things. One view that comes up is when he says they all died in faith without receiving what was promised. They were looking for a better country. If they had want, if, if, if it was about the country they left, they could have gone back, but they were looking for a different country. 
And some commentators say, well, what he's talking about is the dynamic between Canaan and Mesopotamia. Abram came out of Mesopotamia. He didn't regard that as his country. He was looking for a better country. If he wanted to go back to Mesopotamia, he could have, but he didn't. And the same thing with Jacob. Jacob spent 20 years in Haran. Remember, Abraham had come from Haran in Mesopotamia. Jacob spent 20 years there because he went back to Laban's household to get a wife. And he labored for Laban for 20 years. Well, he came back. He left the land. He went back. If he'd wanted to stay in Mesopotamia, he could have. But he understood that Canaan was the land promised to him. A variant of that, a second view, is that the writer was simply pointing to the fact that all of the patriarchs died without receiving this promised land. They saw it from a distance and they laid hold of it, but it was really inherited by their descendants after them. And God even said that in the covenant in Genesis 15. Your descendants will inherit this land. And so the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were looking for the promised land. They were looking for this better country, but it wouldn't come to them. It would come to their descendants. Well, I mean, there are lots of problems with that view, with these, they're kind of related views. But the first thing that struck me is it it states the obvious. You don't even need to say that, that these men were not interested in, they didn't see Mesopotamia as their country. They saw Canaan as the promised land. That goes without saying The writer's making an obvious point that doesn't even need to be made. But the more important thing is that that view makes no sense in context. Because it argues, in fact, it doesn't only not make sense, it argues against the point that the writer's making. His point is precisely that they didn't see in Canaan the promised land. So his point can't be that they, they, they all left Mesopotamia or when they were outside of the land, they, they saw that, that the land of Canaan was the better country God promised to them. That was the covenant inheritance. That's what they were looking for. Because his point is the opposite of that. That Canaan did not actually fulfill for them God's promise. And this becomes hugely important. I'm not going down this path today, but this becomes hugely important even in our country and in American evangelicalism as we consider the issue of the land of Israel and Christian Zionism and, you know, the eternal right of the Jewish people to the land of Palestine or whatever. I mean, all those things are implicated in these ideas. And some of those perspectives even drive the interpretation Certainly within dispensationalism, the land of Israel is a central issue. God's unchanging promise to the Jewish people. And that's going to drive an interpretation uh, to whatever extent it, it becomes influential in people's thinking. So the writer's point is that they lived as foreigners, the patriarchs lived as foreigners and as transients in Canaan. He's already said that. They lived as foreigners and as transients in the promised land, not because they had no choice, but because their gaze was fixed on a different country that they welcomed as their true inheritance. Well, without exempting the patriarchs from the referent, I do believe that the writer is ultimately talking about the vast multitude of Abraham's descendants when he says all these. He's not excluding Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he's including all who have come from them. And that's consistent with what this view that I'm going to set out is consistent with what he's already talked about 
with respect to how he views this idea of the promised inheritance of God. Remember, he said if Joshua had given them rest, then why would God later talk about rest? If Canaan gave them rest, why would God tell the children of Israel later through David that there is a rest that still remains for the people of God? And he will go on as we move forward in chapter 12 and talk about how they have come to a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of Canaan, right? It was the center of the land. And he says, you come to a new Canaan, a new Jerusalem. So what about the objections to it being the descendants? Okay, yeah, that is true. Israel did receive the promise of Canaan. The focus is on the land here. And yes, it's true that the majority of Abraham's covenant descendants within the household of Israel did die in unbelief. So does that negate this view? And I would argue no, because what the writer has in mind is the perspective that became clear with the fullness of the times, which is that the multitude of descendants that God promised to Abraham are those who share in his faithfulness. He's the father of all who have faith. So when he talks about this multitude of descendants, that Abram would be the father of many nations. That's obviously not biological descent. It's not limited to biological descent. What is their connection to the fatherhood of Abram? He's the father of the faithful. He's referring, the writer is referring to the true covenant descendants, those who share Abram's faith. Thus, he can say all these descendants, these true children of Abraham, died in faith without receiving what God had promised. And you say, but wait a minute. I mean, yeah, they were faithful in the household of Israel, and and there were even Gentile faithful who were woven into that covenant community. Um, They did live in the land. They did inherit the land, right? So how did they live in faith, die in faith without receiving what was promised? Again, the issue is what was really the promise that God was giving to them regarding a habitation? Whether they were in Canaan or outside of Canaan, all of these true descendants of Abraham consciously lived as aliens and sojourners because they saw their true homeland at a distance and they welcomed it. They embraced it not as present, but with the assurance of faith. That's the point that he's making. And you may not have thought about this next thing that I want to deal with, but when I I see things like this, what comes into my mind is I say, how did the writer of Hebrews know that? How how could he make such a, a definitive, conclusive statement that all of these died in faith with this mindset, not receiving what was promised, looking to this promise in here? How could he say that about all of these people across the ages. How did he know that the faithful in Israel were looking for a heavenly inheritance beyond Canaan? What was in Israel's history and experience that gave him this insight? And I think that's a, that's a key, again, to, the, to not only the point that he's making, but the thinking that lies behind the point and what he wants his writers to take or his readers to take away. And I would answer the question in the most general sense by saying his insight was clearly scriptural. Because all of his argument so far about these faithful, and really throughout the epistle, is he's interacting with the scriptures, Israel's scriptures, showing how they ultimately are working towards this this trajectory that culminates with the Messiah himself. 
So his insight was scriptural, but not in the sense that he's cherry picking some Jewish doctrines or a handful of verses, but in the sense that he's working from the scriptures as they unfold and weave together the story that we call the salvation history that is centered in the covenant with Abraham. That's where his insight comes from. Since he's focusing on, again, how they viewed the land, whether they were in the land or out of the land, what, what was the country they were really looking for? How did these Israelites, even the patriarchs themselves, how did that dynamic work? And I think, I mean, there's a lot that could be said, but I want to just bring out a few points. Um, starting, first of all, first and foremost, with the significance of Canaan in the covenant with Abraham and in the salvation history, in Israel's life, in relation to Canaan and in relation to God. I've said this many times, that what made Canaan the promised land was the fact that it was God's dwelling place. It wasn't a sacred piece of ground. It was a Canaanite pagan stronghold. Remember when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, and we're going to see this even as we go through chapter 11, but as he brought them out of Egypt and he brought them through the sea, they sang the song of Moses, the song of deliverance. You see that in Exodus chapter 15. After God destroyed the Egyptian army in the sea, they sang the song of Moses, which goes on in the New Testament to become the song of Moses and the Lamb. But the song of Moses has at the heart of it, you have delivered us in order to bring us to your holy habitation to bring us to your sanctuary land to dwell with you. And when God brings them in, or, or even when he, he's just formalizing his covenant relationship with Israel, the relationship that was established with Abraham, he says to them, take up a contribution to build me a sanctuary that I might dwell in your midst. Remember again, the Abrahamic covenant, the heart of it is, I will be their God and they will be my people. What's the point? The, the Abrahamic covenant was all about the issue of a relationship between God and a people. And that's why when God brought Israel out of Egypt, I remember my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, go tell the people. I remember my covenant. Bring them out. I will bring them to myself. It wasn't just setting them free. The promise of God wasn't, Abram, it'd be nice for you to have a little bit of real estate. I know you'd like to have some land, you know, to farm and, and, and do your flocks and herds on. So I'm going to give you a piece of ground. It wasn't that. Canaan was the promised land because it was God's habitation. And it was his dwelling place that he intended to be the place where he communed with the Abrahamic family that he had taken to himself. The covenant was concerned with relationship. That's what Canaan was all about. And that helps us to see the significance of Israel's tumultuous relationship with Canaan in the succeeding centuries. Even when they were in the land through the period of the judges, it was tumult, it was unrest, it was chaos, it was enmity. They were in that piece of real estate but the book ends to the book of Judges is in that time there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, what's the premise? Not that there was no human king. Yahweh was king in Israel. They were in the land, 
and yet their life was, Israel's life was characterized by strife, division, slaughtering one another. Canaan was never truly a place of rest for Israel, never. And that perpetual unrest betrayed the underlying issue, which was the alienation between covenant father and covenant sons, ultimately culminating in his departure from his sanctuary. God ultimately had, he had said, I'll appoint a place for my name. David came to discern Jerusalem is that place. David wanted to build a dwelling for God in Jerusalem. God said, no, Solomon will do that. This will be my dwelling place. But eventually, God departed that dwelling place, didn't he? We see it in Ezekiel. He left. And he desolated his habitation. And he slaughtered the covenant family and he sent them away into exile. A recapitulation of the creation exile. Canaan was supposed to be a prototypical solving of the problem of the creation's exile. I'm going to bring you back to an Edenic place to be with me. And it never was that. Canaan didn't give them rest, or God wouldn't have spoken of rest at another time. The, writers of he- the writer of Hebrews has said that, right? And eventually, the enmity, sons I've reared, but they don't know me. An ox knows his manger, a donkey knows his master, but my people don't know me. They're unfaithful sons. Zion is a harlot who bears unfaithful children for me. I will send her away. And God departed, and the promised land became Ichabod. Ichabod, no glory. And God gave the land its rest that man was supposed to, that Israel, the covenant son, was supposed to give to his land. He gave it its Sabbaths. And at the end of that, he began to bring the people back. And they came back and they rebuilt the temple and then they rebuilt the city. But there was a conspicuous absence in that Yahweh never returned. He promised in Ezekiel that he would return. He promised in the post-exile prophets that he would return. So they were back in the promised land. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. And it was still Ichabod. It was not the promised land because Yahweh wasn't there. Canaan was all about a a symbol of God dwelling with his people, them being with him where he is. Jerusalem, and most narrowly, Mount Zion in the temple, was the place where heaven and earth came together, the place where the creation and human beings would encounter the living God. Most narrowly, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, right? Yahweh enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. So the returned exiles came back, and yet God never returned. And so for all of those succeeding centuries, they began coming back around 538, 537 BC. Through all of the succeeding centuries, the temple sat empty. Some did return. We don't often tend to think about the fact that the majority of Israelites in the exile, whether in the, the, the northern kingdom captivity or the Babylonian captivity, they didn't come back. They stayed where they were. That's what you see in the book of Esther. Israelites still scattered in the Persian empire. They didn't come back. They remained in exile. But the point is that even those who did return were still in exile because they were still alienated from their God. Yahweh had not returned. 
And so the, but through all of that was the promise of God, one day I will return. One day I will restore my dwelling place. One day I will again be in my temple. One day the glory of the Lord will again fill his habitation. And in that day, I will bring all the exiles and I will gather them back to myself. That was the promise of God. God would truly take a people for himself, a people, an Abrahamic family who would know him in truth and conform to his life and his mind. I'll be their people. They will be my God. Think about the Hebrews writer already quoting from Jeremiah 31. In that day, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not like the one I made with their fathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For they did not continue in my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I'll make with them in that day. I will put Torah, my mind, my truth, my revealed will and purpose, I will put that in their minds and write it on their hearts. And they will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. They will not have every man teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord. They will all know me, right? God promised that day would come. And then he would establish his everlasting sanctuary, gather his children in to dwell with him in his habitation, in the harmony and peace and security and rest that he had ordained from the beginning. That's what the land was all about. That's what Canaan was all about. Canaan was a a picture of a restored Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what it represented. That's the sense in which Abraham's descendants were looking for a better country. They were not looking at Canaan, even if they were there. They were not looking at it and saying, this is it. This is it. Well, what about the patriarchs themselves? As I said, you have to include them in this group as well, even though I think the writer is specifically talking about the descendants of Abraham. But even the patriarchs themselves would have had this same sense of a better country. Why? Because the promise of God for an Abrahamic family was a global promise. Yes, I'll make you a great nation, but as I make you the father of a multitude of nations, that alone said that this habitation idea had to extend beyond Canaan. It couldn't be confined to that land. Even those who make much of the land of Palestine today associate it with God's promise to the Jewish people. But Abraham's fatherhood is of all the families of the earth. It's of all the families of the earth. And Abraham also understood, as we ought to, we need to, he understood God's call to him, God's covenant with him, God's promises to him. He understood all of that. He viewed it through the lens of the pledge that God made in Eden and what had happened with the flood and what had happened at Babel. That's why the Genesis account builds its story the way it does. All of that is the backstory to the covenant. And all of that backstory shows that Abraham would have interpreted this global fatherhood and in gathering of a people and the blessing of God going out to all the families of the earth. He would have understood that in terms of God's promise to restore his creation, right? To renew all things. That Eve would be the mother of all the living. So even the patriarchs themselves understood in a germinal way that the land of Canaan couldn't be it. And that's why he says they lived in as transients in the land. They weren't looking to establish a permanent place there because they didn't see that as really what God had promised. Well, to conclude for today, and I want to just put some things in front of you, I I want to develop some of the practical implications of this next week. So um, I I really encourage you to think about these things during the week because I, I want to flesh out the so what. What does this really mean? 
But to conclude for today, I think all of this is sufficient, I hope it's sufficient, to at least establish how it is that all of the faithful descendants of Abraham, not just his biological descendants, but all of the covenant faithful that that came forth from Abraham, how it was that they regarded themselves as sojourners, as foreigners in Canaan. They believed God for his promise and their own experience, their own history at their point in time as they were born into the world, you know, throughout the Israelite history, their own experiences and the words of the prophets through the the centuries, through the years, told them that Canaan was not it. And with the exile and the destruction of Cain and the destruction of David's house and throning, they still nonetheless believed that God would yet keep his word. He would keep his promises to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And they returned and they rebuilt the city and they rebuilt the temple. And yet they knew that God had not fulfilled his word to Abraham. But he would yet prove faithful. And he would prove faithful and fulfill his word in connection with a seed that God had promised to Abram. A seed first promised to Eve, a seed then pledged to David. That's why Paul can say, he doesn't deny the fact that the nation of Israel were the seed of Abraham, but he says when God made his oath, his promise to Abram and his seed, he really had in mind one seed, who is the Messiah. Because it's in that one seed that Israel would become Israel indeed. That's what Isaiah said, right? So all of these throughout the salvation history, up to the coming of the Messiah, they still lived understanding that God had not fulfilled his word to Abram, but he would. And they understood that that the promise of God didn't pertain to that physical land, but to an everlasting habitation that God himself would build through this Abrahamic seed. That doesn't mean that they saw it as otherworldly, but they saw it as something transcendent. What had been depicted in Eden and symbolized even in Canaan as a land flowing with milk and honey, a place of blessing, security, peace, with every man sitting under his vine and under his fig tree, with none to disturb him. The writer's general point then is he's telling this story as a reminder to his readers who know the story. He's reminding them that all of these who died in faith with their visions set on the day when God would actually fulfill his word to Abraham concerning a habitation where God would be the God of a people and the people would be his where they would dwell together. That time had now come, and they were living in the light of that day. They were living as the people of God, dwelling with God in his sanctuary. That's why the writer can say, you have come to the new Jerusalem. He doesn't say one day the new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven. He says, you've come to the new Jerusalem. To the multitude of angels, right? to the souls of just men made perfect, to the mediator of a better covenant. They were living into the reality that all of those before them had died in faith looking to, the realization of the habitation of God with his people. But they too had to live in faith because they had to fix their eyes on the completion of that habitation in the renewal of the new heavens and the new earth. In that vision, with that vision, they too were to be sojourners on the earth. They actually had inherited what their Abrahamic forefathers had not, but they too needed to live in view 
of that coming day when all would be consummated. They had to live as sojourners. So some things to think about for next week. This is what I want to develop is in terms of, okay, what do we do with this? How does this affect us? Because clearly if they lived in the context of the realization, the obtainment of the Abrahamic promises, but they needed to still live in faith, what does this mean for us? Well, one of the first things I want to say, and this should be obvious, but it's not for a lot of Christians, is that this concept of heaven as we imagine it, the place that we go to when we die, is not the inheritance that God had pledged. It should not be the object of our hope and our longing. There are many who interpret the passage in this way. Abraham was looking for a better country, a heavenly one. All these who came from Abraham were looking for a better country, a heavenly one, whose architect and builder is God. They were were looking to the day when they would get to die and go to heaven. That's our perspective. That's not what the writer is talking about. And in fact, if, that's, if that were what he was talking about, his readers would have said, what in the world are you talking about? That was not the way Jewish people thought about what God had promised and what the inheritance would be. We've developed this notion that the inheritance is going off to heaven when we die. But our inheritance is what the scriptures insist on, which is the renewed creation, as that renewed creation is rendered as God always intended, as it is rendered sacred space. The habitation where heaven and earth come together, where God dwells intimately, perfectly, exhaustively with his creation in and through his human image bearers. That's what was promised to Abraham, the conjoining of heaven and earth. That's the scripture's promise. That's the scripture's vision. That's the scripture's trajectory. And it's evident even in the climax that we see in Revelation 21 and 22. John doesn't say, I saw in a vision um, souls flying off to heaven. He says, I saw in a vision the new Jerusalem coming from heaven to earth, the conjoining of heaven and earth. And what is the angelic interpretation? Now the dwelling of God is with men. They dwell with him. They are his bondservants. His name is on their forehead. These are the things that I want you to think about. You know, there's a reason that, that, that so many Jews don't have much of a notion of the afterlife. Many of them don't believe in an afterlife. Because the, the Israelite scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, really don't say much about the afterlife, what we call the, when you die, what happens. Uh, you know, it's, it's this shadowy, mysterious, nebulous, um, mysterious uh, existence in, in, in this realm called Sheol, the place of the dead. And there are a lot of Jews who believe the scriptures, who believe that there is no afterlife for human beings. There's just the realm of the dead. But what the Old Testament does promote and celebrate is God's promise to renew his creation and to restore his human creature in relation to that creation. That's the heart of the Jewish idea of the Chalam Haba, the age to come, the Messianic age. An earthly, creational future. The New Testament as well, we don't often think about this, but it has almost nothing to say about what we call the immediate, intermediate state, what happens when you die. Paul says to go and be with Christ is better by far, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But even then, when he says to be absent from the body and that's better by far, he's talking in the context of where I'm not longing to be disembodied. I'm longing to be clothed with the skene, the tent that God has prepared for me and kept for me. The New Testament is not concerned with the idea of our spirits, our souls going to heaven. What it's preoccupied with as the Old Testament is creational renewal. 
with human beings at the center, now understood in the fullness of the times in terms of Jesus' resurrection as the substance and the very... uh, um, the, the, the substance and the promise, the first fruits of that renewal. So heaven simply is the realm that God inhabits. Going to heaven is our spirits being present with the Lord, but the ultimate idea is the cohabitation of God with his creation, the conjoining of heaven and earth. That's why the passage, John 14, that we so often interpret as we, Jesus is preparing a place in heaven for us. Uh, you know, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. When you die, you get to go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He goes on to say that the meaning of my death, what you're going to experience is a resurrection in which in that day you will understand how it is that I, even as a man, am in my father and you will be in me and and you will be in him. My father and I will come and we will make our place with you. Going and preparing a place is this, this preparation of the conjoining, the bringing together of God and human beings. That's what is habitation. That's what sacred space is all about. So our destiny then isn't a place, but a perfected relationship. That's what Abraham understood. That was the marrow of the Abrahamic covenant. The promise of an heir was the promise that I will restore all things and gather all things up into myself. As Paul says, in that day, God will be all in all. And the yes and amen of all of that is bound up in the Messiah himself. That's Revelation 21 and 22. So that vision, here's my parting shot, that vision and hope, rather than our common conception of going to heaven, has to define and determine what it means for us to live as aliens and strangers in this world. Because we're called to, aren't we? Peter says that. And I challenge you to go and, and to look at uh, what Peter has to say in 1 Peter 2 and 3. This living as aliens and strangers. And see if he's talking about it in the way of hunker down, hide from the world, because one day you're going to heaven. You're an alien and a stranger here. So, you know, like a person living in a foreign country, go, go hide in an apartment someplace, you know, until, because, you know, you can't relate to anybody anyway. We too must live in hope. We too have our gaze set on a better country, a heavenly city. And we too live as aliens and strangers. But what does that look like? What does that mean in view of this hope in view of this promise, in view of what this city really is, in view of what this habitation really is. That's what I want you all to think about for next week. And and I'm going to, in conjunction with our communion service, I want to flesh some of that out as we come to the table. So that's the assignment for this week. Let's close in prayer. Father, I know these are lofty things, but they really truly are Christianity 101. These are the things that were the very essence of Paul's gospel. These are the things when he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. It wasn't about soul winning as we think about it. It was about the proclamation that heaven and earth have come together in the Messiah and that God is in the process of restoring all things in him unto the end that he would sum up everything in his creation in the Messiah and in that way be all in all. The gospel was the good news of new creation, the good news of creational renewal the good news of the promised and now realized kingdom of God. These are the very fundamentals of what it means to be Christians and to have embraced and be proclaimers and livers out of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. 
Father, I pray that, that you would enable each one of us and give us the time and the facility, the opportunity this week, free us up, that we would have the time to actually sit and pray and contemplate and think and read and study, even as Cliff exhorted us, to consider these things and our place in this great story and what it is for us to live as aliens and sojourners in this world as we know it. What really it is to look to a better country, having already come to the new Jerusalem. For these things are critical to our testimony in the world. They're critical to the lives we live. They're the very essence of our faithfulness. Faithfulness involves discerning and owning the Abrahamic inheritance. And I pray, Father, that you will help us in these things. Prepare us even as we gather again next week around the table. And may it be a rich and a fruitful time. I ask these things, Father, pleading with you to help us, to build us up in this most holy faith, that Jesus would be glorified in his church and through the church in the world. Amen.